Local environment heroes Saving the trees and the bees And doing it daily Welcome to the Local Environment Heroes podcast, a podcast that brings you a series of chats with some amazing local heroes from here in Canberra and from further afield who are doing ace things for our world. The podcast is produced and supported by the Canberra Environment Centre and your hosts are me, Fiona Vakanen, Director of the CEC and Julie Bolton, a sustainability strategist based here in Canberra. Local Environment Heroes. Okay, Gabby, so with all of our guests, we always start with this opening question. Has there been a defining moment in your life when you've looked at the world and thought something needs to change now? Yes, I suppose when I started investigating if there are any other nature pedagogy leaders out there and what other services were doing to give children access to nature, I wanted to connect in with those people and I couldn't find any that were local. Nobody's advocating for children's access to nature. So, for example, Early Childhood Australia has nothing in its five-year plan to advocate for children's access to nature. Children's environments that we have here that I think should be standard as part of an exceeding program. So I've just been on the research advocacy train ever since Uh I've realised that children are being discussed in government consultations as future generations and nobody's assessing the environments that children are in and the environments that adults control that children spend time in. So tell us about the environment that you've created here. We've just been on an amazing tour with Gabby walking around and she showed us everything. So now Gabby, if you could tell our audience, what is it that's in in this centre that's really different and unique to other children's facilities? Well, we're a parent committee run not-for-profit service. So eight years ago, the parent committee decided that that's what they wanted for their children. And so... A a nature environment for their children. Yeah. So um, our service has spent the last eight years transitioning from Plastic Fantastic Mm -hmm. entertainment facility to um, pushing out our fence line, creating several gardens, some with chickens and ducks, some for growing food and some for flowers and beauty. And those those chooks are gorgeous. Yeah, they're sil- <laughs> silky very chickens. Very healthy. Silky chickens. They're the best for children, I think, and really easy to take care of. And what struck me out there also was the way you had these, all these uneven surfaces. Yes. The logs, the rocks, the sticks. It, not too much plastic inside. Yeah, so... Um, if you're, if you're moving over uneven surfaces, you've got to concentrate. Mm-hmm. You've got to notice where you are mm-hmm. and build your awareness, build your spatial awareness as well. Um, so developmentally, children thrive in environments like that. And it's constantly changing. It's seasonal. So grasses come and go, um, edible crops get planted and then get harvested and eaten on the spot. We don't really do a lot of cooking with them. We make sure that a lot of the things we grow, including the flowers, are edible. Tell us about nature pedagogy. P- pedagogy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to us about what it is so, and how you think it transforms the lives of children. Well, pedagogy means the art of teaching. Mm-hmm. So it's an, it's an art form. I'm a creative type. Um, 
By having somebody responsible for the environment that children have access to and someone who programs and designs with the children, um, creates the environments with the children, we get to learn how capable children are of digging, moving logs, hay bales. They are so competent um, and they just need a chance to learn. So by having um, children be able to see into the yards where the chickens and the ducks are, it contributes to children's well-being because when you just sit and observe an animal like a chicken or a duck, I don't know why, but it just calms the nervous system. Mm -hmm. So a lot of children who might be having um, emotional dramas in their lives or may have difficulty transitioning from home to here, if they can spend some time digging or being with the animals, collecting eggs, then helps them transition into a state of well-being and belonging. And how important is that state of well-being and belonging for the future of our world? Well, Early Childhood Australia has teamed up with Beyond Blue to um, create well-being um, educational systems for educators to embed within services. Uh, and they're also promoting... Aboriginal ways of knowing and being, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander ways of knowing and being. Nature pedagogy intersects both of those areas. So the foundation of my nature pedagogy program is looking after the land, the animals and the people. Acknowledgement of country and Aboriginal perspectives and ways of knowing and being as in storytelling, sitting around the campfire, caring for country having rights and responsibilities are all part of the program and all contribute to well-being because if you have rights but no responsibilities, how are you going to get a sense of self and what your purpose is in life? There's nothing better than being nourished by your efforts, being able to put a seed in and see it come up rather than be just handed um a tray with cotton wool with some plants on it that mm -hmm. are not even in context. Mm -hmm. Even worm farms are apartment living for worms. We like to just have areas in our service where we have rocks and logs. The children have the agency to investigate themselves and then they see worms in context. So if they find a worm, we get them to give that worm a job. So would you like this worm to grow? Some snow peas? We're growing some flowers at the moment. And in that way, they have a personal relationship with the creatures that are actually in their environment. I loved your comment around children's environment should be more than plastic entertainment and containment complexes. Yeah. Well, I've actually worked in a correctional facility when yeah. I lived in Western Australia. Mm. I was an educational officer there. And then when I... Moved back from WA and uh, decided I wanted to transition to early childhood education and care as, um, as my new life purpose. Mm -hmm. I noticed a similarity between that correctional facility and some services that I've worked in that remind me of correctional facilities in that children are always being corrected, mm -hmm. in that the most confident children dominate the um, 
monkey bars uh, where the quieter mm. children don't have access to that area that is controlled by, I suppose, the mini Donald Trump types is a bit of an exaggeration, but um, the most valuable real estate is taken up by um, the dominant children. And also there's not open-ended play. There's fake grass giving the illusion of nature, but that heats up in summer uh, and it becomes inhospitable for bare feet, um, which is healthy for children to have. Um, also, I've noticed around, especially around Canberra, uh, people might have noticed uh, in the Tigranong area, there's a correctional facility next door to a school and they've both got the same bars around them. I'm just wondering if they've got a conveyor belt between the two because what are we preparing our children for? We're preparing them for a life indoors because they won't have access to air conditioning because in 20 years, if global temperatures keep rising the way they do and population growth goes the way it's predicted, we're not going to have enough electricity to power our, our, our penchant for living in a fridge while it's 45 degrees out. So you've described your role as or one of your roles is um, to helping to transition services to more children-based play. What services are you helping and why is this role so important? So when I've seen services that are wonderful, like you'd see they'd be in a, a, a stylish magazine of how fantastic they look, but then you see the outdoor areas and the garden is behind a fence and I realise that it, Adults controlling children's access to nature and long daycare. Um, children's brain development in the first five to seven years, first three years, is, they, they say it's 75 to 90% of brain development happening in that time. So the infrastructure of who that person is is being scaffolded by their learning environment. They're learning about the world where they spend possibly from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., being told when they can and can't go outdoors and when they go, do go outdoors, what environments are they going into? So a lot of the toys children are given are to replace what they would be interested in in nature. So they're plastic replicas of things that already exist outside? Yeah, rocks, logs, yeah, building blocks. Um, so... It's quite interesting that children are interested in Lego, which is all very uh, modular. It's all very conveyor belt. It's all very, um, I suppose, an outcropping of the industrial revolution of everything needing to be standardised to be built. So there's a limit to the way children use their imagination with these prescription toys. I think it's such a good point because something we've had come up a lot with these conversations around community connections, the interesting things people are doing is imagination mm. and the development of that imagination, exactly like what you're doing here yep. as to be one of the puzzle pieces mm. to improving our environment and our climate future. Well, sustainability, I think, is a very creative act. Yes. How else could this be used? Or well, how may I repurpose this? How may mm. I upcycle this? Uh, what other other thing could this be used for? So for that um, purpose, we're very grateful to the Green Shed uh, that we go and visit out at 
Magalain. And because we're not for profit, they give us um, free resources. So we've been able to build garden beds and uh, environments for children that are made out of repurposed materials. Tell us about some of the changes you've seen in the children at the centre. Like, so, you know, you might have children who come in, um, they start their time at the centre and might not have experienced the outdoors as much as you might have hoped. And over the course of their time here, what changes do you see happen? Well, I suppose the best way to answer that is to compare where I first started my career, which was in, in, a, in a service that was indoors, had limited access to outdoor environments, um, and it was a toddler room, so two to three-year-olds, um, and we we were allowed to give the children access to outdoor rooms. So there was a room with palm trees in it, then there was another room with a sand pit in it and fake grass, and then there was another room that they could ride their bikes around. It was difficult to open the windows. It was very, very hot. And uh, I just noticed that children's developmental needs, say to push and pull, for example, heavy things and to test how strong you are, uh, at a service like ours where they have rocks and logs and bales of hay and trees to climb, children will express those developmental needs there. However, if a child is indoors the whole time, uh, they will do it on the furniture and on each other. So there was a lot of unhappy noises coming from that service for over a year. It was a new service, brand new. And compare that to here? Uh, children are allowed to bare feet, splash in muddy puddles, um, build cubby houses, feed chickens, count eggs, listen to chickens hatching out of an egg. Um, they can eat what they find in the garden, including, as I said, including the flowers. Um, they can learn about natural systems in context. They can be little engineers and engineer their own river flow. They can um, help build, build wicking beds. They are involved in everything. We don't do it for them. We do all our projects with them. So all of our nature-based projects are with the children, not for them. So they learn to understand item is like a wicking bed is in context and they have ownership over it and they look after it and that's what we want them to do with the planet yeah so yeah I was gonna ask when does that start otherwise yeah 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 so that that I'm particularly interested in um the, the, the theory of change here that you get people you get young people like children interested and engaged in the natural environment, and the theory of change is that therefore they will then, as they get older and have more agency and can vote or they've got more control over yeah. the broader world, they then, to some extent I guess, they, they are then able to, or they then have this sense of responsibility and understanding that they want to protect and um, ensure that the environment is safe. And secure. Do you think, is that the theory of change we're working on here, that this access to nature early on leads to an ability to protect and conserve the natural environment? And also valuing nature. Well, you have to value mm. in order to mm. protect, yeah. Well, 
First of all, I believe that every child is going to have their own individual relationship with nature. Mm -hmm. So we do say, hello, land. I promise to care about you and you care about me. So I understand being from a very early age that we have reciprocal relationship with country, with the land. Um, The children understand that if there was no country, we'd be floating around in space. Hello, plants. I promise to care for you and you care for me. And that opens up conversations about how do plants care for us and how do we care for plants. Um, Hello, chickens. Hello, ducks. So these are not objects that children acquire. Um, So that's, that's from coming from Industrial Revolution and that's also coming from monarchy, power top down, um, as opposed to belonging to a community where you have rights and responsibilities. But also from a very early age, the children who attend our service are experiencing competency. Hmm. I'm competent. I can do things. I help. I have worked with people in a group to achieve a group goal. It might be just moving this enormous bale of hay from the top yard down to the bottom yard, but look what we did together as a team. Children know that they feel good when they're outside. So how about understanding that if you want to manage your emotions or if you want to feel better, I'm going to take off my shoes and stand on the grass. Better than that, I'm going to lie down on the grass and do some grounding. I'm going to do digging when I'm angry. I'm going to move this heavy log and see how strong I am. We can't just keep providing children a safe containment facility where they don't learn those things. They get, they get told what to do and when to do and there's nothing that's going to kill the human spirit quicker than not being able to have control over your environment or a sense of belonging. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I've also read your comment on being a wild human in nature which I loved and I was just so curious about where that this idea first came from for you where you experienced it and how how we can create these wild human in nature experiences (laughs) for other people um, I suppose I have a playful relationship with nature and that came about because I, when I wasn't working as an actor, which was more than when I was working as an actor, I would always seek out, um, so for instance, when I lived in Cairns, I just love walking barefoot in the rainforest and um, swimming in the rivers there and, you know, finding amazing places to investigate and explore myself entered with my own personal relationship with nature. So when I say to the children, you know, we're going to say, hello, land, I promise to care about you and you care about me. That's several experiences in nature where I felt a very personal connection and even joke, a joke being played on me. So I'll tell you this story because I think it's beautiful. Um, when I finished working in television, I moved to the central coast and every day I would swim across this river on a lilo and go walking around the headland at Tonga. And then it had been raining a lot. So when one day when I went to the river, 
um, the river flow was stronger than normal. Despite my best efforts, mm-hmm. I couldn't swim across and I got swept out into the Patonga Bay, which apparently is full of sharks. Oh, my goodness. And all coming to want to swim upstream to get rid of their parasites so they're grumpy. And so there I am on a lilo and I'm imagining just sharks underneath me, but I'm exhausted. And so I refer back to all the great stories and myths about the hero, what happens to the hero or heroine after they've tried their best and failed. Well, they surrender, they give up. And then so I surrendered and let my hands and feet dangle into the water and then my feet touched sand (laughs) and I was probably in a metre of water that was out quite far, but I I laughed and picked up my lilo and walked back in and felt like the land had played a big joke on me. So, yeah. Being a wild human. Being a wild human. Out in nature. That's right. And ancient cultures have talked about having personal relationships with nature and being able to ask it to rain. Mm. And so in that spirit of playfulness and imagination and what if, what if we could ask it to rain. Uh, we, we play that with the children and I don't want to discount that relationship mm-hmm. because, I mean, maybe it's for another podcast, but I think I flooded the Gold Coast one. <laughs> I was walking the land around, uh, it was called the Golden Door. It was a health retreat and I was there for three weeks and it was very dry and I walked the land and said, oh gosh, I wish it would rain, but not till I leave, not till I leave. And then three weeks later I was leaving and the as the gates were closing behind me, huge rain clouds rolled in and it rained and rained and rained and rained and houses were swept into ravines and Mm. the Gold Coast got flooded and I took it very personally. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, I will be more careful with my wishes. Um, And what about providing the children here that opportunity to connect to that wild humanity? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Like they, they love the wild humans things of sitting around a campfire and singing a song and clapping sticks, being barefoot over rocks, over logs, over wood shavings on beautiful grass, a variety of, um, and also the, the, the way children play here, it's very child led. You know, we don't make them do anything. We invite them into environments that inspire them to play or create, um, construct. You were telling us a story before you hit record about um, a, a walk that a child had gone on with their parent mm. and the parent had come back and relayed to you how the child picked up a feather but the feather said, oh, no, the feather belongs to the land. Yes. Tell us about this connection, like building on what you've just been saying about the connection to land and we say hello to land. This was a really, I found this a really interesting and powerful story. Yeah. So we take our children on nature walks up a corridor, to, uh, a nature corridor next to Hindmarsh Drive. And before we go into onto that land, we do acknowledgement of country. And we also explain to the children that things on this land that we're walking on don't belong to us. They belong on country. So a, a bit of rolled up wood might be a home for a spider or a bone that you find from maybe a kangaroo that has disintegrated. 
also belongs on country. It's not just for us to take. We're transitioning from this imperial idea that we are, and and, and a lot of this comes from from um, biblical texts as well that we're not necessarily custodians of the land, but the land is for us to acquire and use as a resource, rather than as a place that we have a relationship with and are custodians of. As part of that transition, we're teaching the children that we can look, we can cons- consider before we touch things because a creature might have that as, as its home. So we teach that to the children. And then I, w- I got told a story by a parent that was um, on a walk with their child who saw a feather and said, look, mum, there's a feather that belongs on country. And I just thought that was such such a beautiful way for a child to have an understanding of their role as a custodian and, and their attitude towards something beautiful that might be acquired and yet was a resource that belonged on country. And that, this is where I see Aboriginal ways of knowing and being being so useful, such a gift for us to be able to share with these children and how it will shape their attitude towards the environment for years to come because I don't see any, I don't know of any primary schools who even offer this so I don't know if they'll have the same access to nature when they go on. And when I asked my nephews and nieces why there were no gardens at their centre at their school, the answer was, oh, somebody wrecked it. And so the rest of children who might gain some sort of emotional well-being in a garden, they don't get the opportunity to even have any sense of agency or control over their environment. Where are they going to be going through their big feelings that they have, especially when they're transitioning to high school? So if another centre around with anywhere in Australia really or anywhere was yeah. planning on embarking on the journey that you've embarked on with this centre, yes. what would be a piece of advice you'd give them? Well, recently we had um, uh, we had a sector get together um, on this very question on how to how do you transition to a nature based mm-hmm. service, and I would just do one thing at a time. Um, so what I recommended is hay bales; they're amazing. Worms will gravitate to live under them. The children can move them around; they can climb on top of them, and then this resource will disintegrate down. And once it's disintegrated down and become a bit brown and full of worm castings, then it's ready to be used in your compost and um, as mulch or as a foundation for laying down grasses. Um, I also have available on our on the Woden Valley Early Learning uh, website um, an Access to Nature survey that you can do with your children so that you can add that into your quip. So it asks really simple questions that you and the children can answer together and then you can use it to go to say your director or um, get support from whoever the overarching authority is for your service um, and you can say to them None of the children have said they've had access to sticks or logs or rocks or we counted three rocks in the whole service or we never splash in muddy puddles. Why is that? But also reach out and connect 
because I I would love to do anything to help services transition. Uh, I think it's a human rights issue. And, um, yeah, I, I hope you have a look at our website and see what's, what is possible. And if it's possible, why isn't it being done? Because it costs less than a bus driver's wage. No offence to bus drivers. I love sitting on a bus. But it costs less than a bus driver's wage to have a person who is in charge of making sure children have access to nature, which is their birthright. They, were, they weren't born in a pod or in a spaceship. They were born on this beautiful planet, and it's up to us to make the introduction. <laughs> All right. So, Gabby, we have five hero questions. Uh, the first one is, congratulations, you have just been elected the president of the world. Thank you. <laughs> What is the one change you try to implement first? Well, I suppose I would set up some sort of body that would help services transition. Yeah. Um, I would like to see the ACT government and all the departments who have um, children as part of their uh, purview to and well-being, uh, I would like them to be able to get together and do child's right due diligence and work on whether or not we're going to prepare children for life in the 21st century now that we know everything that's coming down the line from what's been given to us from the intergovernmental panel on climate change to um, the special rapporteur's report on a right to a safe, clean, healthy environment. And I'd like to know, I'd like to know how, when the ACT becomes the first jurisdiction in Australia to embed a right to a safe, clean, healthy environment within the Human Rights Act, how that will filter down to early learning environments. Because at the moment, it's nationally regulated. It's 2030. Describe the world that you see around you. Well, Everyone's listened to what I've had to say, and um, I'm I'm very pleased to see that um, services have transitioned, and not only that, but that has inspired primary schools and high schools to provide environments where their children experience agency, competency, and are able to be nourished by their efforts, and where they understand that they have a reciprocal relationship with the earth, plants, animals and people. Who are your environmental heroes? Oh, so Ken Robinson. So uh, he's got a TED Talk. Yeah. He's got a TED Talk which um, sort of educated me about the history of the education system and how it's been based on an industrial revolution model um, and, and how that has, um, I suppose, resulted in conveyor belt care and batching children in age groups and, um, and how, that, how that turns us into just puppets rather than people with agency and um, feeling of self-worth and competency to create heaven on earth, because I think it's possible. What's your hot tip for being more environmentally friendly or aware? Take off your shoes, stand on some nice grass and say, hello land, 
promise to care about you. And you care about me. And then just let that conversation start from there. Do one thing. Don't have to do all the thing, you know. All you have to do is push a seed into the ground and it does the jo- rest of the work. But your job is to know the right time and the right environment to plant that seed in. So timing and knowledge is something, but just just enjoy enjoy nature <laughs> because then you're going to want to do more. All right. So finally, what is your final slogan or quote or mantra if you have a key message that you would like to leave our listeners with? If you're going to control children's access to nature and the environment they spend their time in from morning till night, then you have an ethical obligation to give them access to nature that gives them well-being and nourishes them and not only provides them with a safe environment now, but helps them with competencies and capacities so that they may continue to live with well-being and safety long after we're gone. Amazing. Thank you so much. This was a really illuminating and inspiring chat. Thank you. Thank you. So glad. Thank Thank you. Thank you, Gabby. Thanks for including me. Local environment heroes saving the trees and the bees and doing it daily. Local Environment Heroes is recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, the traditional custodians of the Canberra area. We pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging, and we recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and communities. Subscribe to the Local Environment Heroes podcast wherever you find your podcasts and keep in touch.